0: Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, guys. Hey. I've got a super important question. Oh. Yeah, and I wish I was asking for a friend, but I can't say that I am. Okay. What does the word yeet mean? (laughs) Because I'm at the age... Where my kids are starting to say stuff that I don't know what it is, <gasps> and um, apparently my five-year-old now says "yeet." But like, how do you use it? Is it a verb? Is it okay. a? Is it an adjective? Yeah, let's see. Um, maybe let's go and yeet some dinner. <laughs> right. My yeet have been hurting all day. <laughs> After dinner, I would like to eat a yeet. What's a yeet? A treat. Oh, that one. It, yeah, it, it didn't stretch. It was a stretch. Yeah. I like the uh, creativity, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just don't like. He, of course, used it while we were playing a fun scooter game the boys like to play, where I throw shit at them and try to hit them with it as they're <laughs> riding, <laughs> It's a beach ball. And Ben was it's like— Like dodgeball, but scooters. Yeah. <laughs> and Ben was like, Okay, Mom, if you hit me, then you say yeet. And if I hit you, or if I miss it or whatever, then you can say, whoa, or wow. <laughs> and I was like, okay. but I was like, what—what what is yeet? Like, I've heard it on some of his little, like, Minecraft YouTube videos or whatever. hmm I just didn't think I was going to have to deal with that word, I guess. But the way he's using it is kind of like, like a, yeah, yeet, mm. yeet, right? I just can't, I don't, know. I don't even like how like my body feels when I say it. I hate the whole thing. Yeah. Makes yeah. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it. Yeah. I mean, it clearly is not a word that we should be saying. No. But I guess I'm going to have to start getting up on my kid lingo. I just still have a problem with, like, saying, like, oh, period. Mm. On fleek. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that went away. That was like a crash and burn, didn't it? It did not last. Didn't stand the test of time. No. But, I mean, I guess, like, our parents' generation was probably, like, all the stuff that we said was stupid. Like, totally. Butt muncher. All that in a bag of chips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't know. Whatever. And like, you know, BRB, T-T-Y-L. Yeah. LOL. And some people think it's lots of love. Yeah. And then whenever they're like, <laughs> have you, you've seen those texts where it's like, hey, I'm so sorry. Grandma passed away this morning, but she led a full life. And then the mom's like, LOL. It's like, ooh, uh-oh, nice. <laughs> That's not funny, but she thinks it's lots of love. Yeah. Or like the dad like responded to something with WTF and they're like, Mm. dad, do you know what that means? And he was like, why the face? (laughs) Ah. Well, and I also (laughs) saw something the other day where apparently this girl or somebody, the kid told the dad that BDSM was like biscuits and like something like like a food type of thing. And he's like, what, the mom messages and is like, why did you tell your father BDSM means whatever, whatever, whatever? Because he just asked our neighbors over for a BDSM <gasps> party. Oh, and, but he thinks it's like a no. barbecue. <laughs> and they were like, that's exactly why I told him that. Yeah, exactly. You see what happened? <laughs> yeah, it's like barbecue something, something. Oh <laughs> so my gosh. I know. That's mean. <laughs> well, there's any young'uns out there, let us know what yead is and how does one use it. So we won't we'll know, but we will not, because I don't I I don't think I can pull it off. I'm no, not even going no. to try. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, just for knowing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, um, before we get into today's case, we just as always would like to let you know that if you have been listening and listening and you're running out of episodes. You can get hundreds more
1: over mm-hmm. on the Patreon.
0: Oh, yeah. I think we're on, gosh, 130-something on Patreon for mixtapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we still have the doc jams on top of that. I know. Yeah. Countless episodes over— th- Well, that's not true. I just counted them, but <laughs> uh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Countless if you're using your hands, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Even if you bring the toes in, still. Oh, yeah. You're going to get way more than just the toes. <laughs> Yeet. <laughs> We've got a buttload of episodes over there. Oh, so yeah. A bit Way more up there. Definitely Easy. go check it out. And, um, you know, you could be getting three, even four new episodes a week. We just started doing what we call... <laughs> Our T to the fourth power Y, some time to talk to you. And that comes out on Sundays, and it is just us kind of shooting the shit about stuff. Yeah, so if you enjoy hearing us talk about mindless things and um, no direction, aimlessly just talking, Mm -hmm. you'll enjoy it. If you want one entire episode about different ways to use the word tit, (sighs) then that's for you. Yeah, or one time we talked about slugs, so... Oh, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you just never know what you're going to get. Exactly. All right. Um, I think that's enough of the business. Oh, stay the fuck up, up, up. Business. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Yeah. Okay. And if you've clicked on, well, if you have eyes and you saw what you clicked on and you are not surprised by this, then you know that it's going to be the Alamo Christian Foundation. hmm Which I definitely thought was Alamo. I know, and I was like, "Oh no, 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 no!" His name is Tony Alamo. Yeah, but so we got that, and thank you to Kay Crawford for suggesting it. Yes, and of course, thank you to Madison for writing this up. Hey, girl, thanks. Eat. Yeet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeet. <laughs> I can't stop. Now. <laughs> oh no. I said, I'm not going to do it. And then I immediately was like, I'm going to do it. I feel like that one worked though. I thought it worked. worked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I might be getting somewhere with it. Don't encourage the behavior. (laughs) We do have several trigger warnings. Yeah. Okay. We have assaults, cults, child abuse, death, emotional abuse, pedophilia, child pornography, physical abuse, rape, sexual abuse, sexual assault terminal illness, torture, and probably honestly more, but yeah, just goes on and on. It's awful. Yeah. That covers it fairly well. Yeah. All right. Okay. In the late 1960s, Hollywood Boulevard was filled with people carrying flyers that said repent or perish. These people were members of the Alamo Christian Foundation, a ministry led by husband and wife, Tony and Susan Alamo. The two called themselves prophets and said that God spoke directly to them. What started as a chance meeting in a bar led to the formation of one of the most notorious cults in America. To many onlookers, the foundation just appeared to be a strange type of ministry. Little did they know that behind closed doors and away from the cameras, there was rampant physical assaults, child abuse, sexual abuse, and child pornography. The man who stood at the head of the foundation and referred to himself as the Teflon pastor soon dug his own grave and unraveled in front of America with no one to blame but himself. Hmm. Sucks to suck. No, no, I hate that guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I hate that guy. (laughs) Tony Alamo was born on September 20th, 1934, in Joplin, Missouri. His given name was Bernie Lazar Hoffman. Bernie. (laughs) Uh, His father was a Jewish immigrant from Romania. There isn't much information on Tony's childhood, In his late teen years, Tony left Joplin and headed for the West Coast, changing his name to Marcus Abad, maybe? And then Marcus Mm -hmm. Hoffman. He had mild success in LA as a big band singer. Wow. just interesting. He told people that he recorded a hit record and was asked to manage several well-known bands, including the Beatles. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but uh, a band I've I've managed. Yeah. uh, They... uh, I got him famous, you know. Like, no, the fuck you did not, right? Like, you're you're singing Donka Shane at friggin' little tiny clubs. Yeah. That's what you're doing, Pompano Joe's. Like, Oh, uh, that's a good song. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of the restaurant, but okay. <laughs> Actually, I was thinking of remember on Dennis the Menace when it's like, what, Geno Joe? Yeah, Geno Joe. That's what I was thinking of. Oh, okay. Great song. Yeah. Uh, He also said he managed the doors and the Rolling Stones, which like... You're lying. Like, he's like, name a band. Managed them. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I forgot about them. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, like... Yep. You would think that like... Because none of it's even remotely true. So you'd think that if he's going to try and like put himself in with some of these other kind of people, it would be like, um, you know... Maybe one bigger band, but like I didn't totally manage them. I like worked with their management team or something. Like, yeah. I don't know. It, he just puts it out there though, like, no, I did this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you, if by managing, you mean you saw them live once? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> then, okay. Oh, I managed them too. <laughs> Tony had extreme stories of how in demand he was in the music industry and used this to gain attention. Susan Alamo was born on January 1st, 1925 in Alma, Arkansas. Her birth name was Edith Opal Horn. Like her husband, not much is known about her upbringing or early years. She told people that when she was a young girl, she suffered from severe tuberculosis and that God miraculously cured her. She was shown the book of Revelation and said she was told that, quote, she would be preaching the gospel in the last days just before Jesus Christ comes back to earth. Prior to meeting Tony, Susan had been married twice and had a daughter named, I never figured out how to say her name. I don't know if anybody knows how to pronounce her name. Christy, Christy, how? Christy, I don't know. I think it's Chris, no, Christian. Christian. Yeah, it's spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-H-I-A-O-N. Everybody just called her Chris. Yeah, so that's what we're going to call her. Yeah, it was just. I'm sure it's a beautiful name. I just, I can't yeah, I can I just, figure out yeah, how to Yeah, I say can't it. figure out what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. Chris talks openly about her mother and what life was like growing up with her. She said that Susan wanted to be a movie star and moved the two of them to Los Angeles. Susan got a job as a B-girl, and I did not know what this was. Me neither. A B-girl's job was to sit at the bar while the bartender refilled their alcohol glass with tea. So it looked like they're drinking an alcoholic drink. And then when a man come up and wanted to talk to them, they'd end up paying for her drinks, because now I'm talking to this woman— and so this encouragement to spend more money while the bar wasn't actually serving the B-girls alcohol. It was small, but it showed Susan that she could easily con people out of money. Great. Seems like a lot, like, are they paying these women? It seems like a lot of fucking effort just to get like a few extra drinks paid for yeah. that you didn't serve. I don't know. It is weird, yeah. But she had a way of getting attention and especially in churches and i guess just over time you would figure something like that out but it's just like it's a weird thing to notice like you know what i get a lot of attention in churches yeah it's a weird place to target yeah yes yeah. so she's like okay now i need to hone like hone in on that like well but i mean had she never figured that out the the alamo foundation would have never probably gotten off the ground because yeah tony needed susan Oh, for sure. Yeah. She had a knack for being able to walk into a room full of people and everyone would look at her. Susan knew this could make her money. Once she realized how powerful of a presence she had at churches, Susan would bring Chris with her to churches in the area, telling her that they were going to, quote, do church tonight. After a sermon, the pastor would call Susan up front and ask her to spread the word. Chris would sing and then Susan would give her testimony. Chris said that, Everything her mother would say during these testimonies was fake. She lied, and she was very good at it. She told churchgoers how God had touched her when he healed her from tuberculosis. Chris knew early on that her mother was a con artist. They made money from the donations that churchgoers gave, and that's literally how the two of them survived. This was Susan's full-time job at this point. Was conning people at church? Yeah. We're going to go do a church tonight. What kind of people? I just. Hmm. And like, so she's giving her testimony and then the people there are donating money to her for her. You know, hard The trouble that she's been through. Yeah. Because yeah, like, I don't really know how that works. But usually it's like, you know, when you go to church, you're going to give money to the church. But I guess everybody just gave it to her. It's interesting. I mean, that's an interesting way to do it. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, but maybe the pastor was in on it too, where he was like, wow, when you speak, we get a lot of members come to hear you. Mm. So we'll give you donations or whatever. I guess. Susan, at this time going by the name Susan Lipowitz, continued to spread lies and use her engaging personality to get her and Chris what they needed. She was constantly seeking people out in the music industry to get her and her daughter a deal, but it was mostly, obviously, her a deal. One night Susan and Chris were at a bar on Hollywood Boulevard and Tony Alamo came inside. Susan asked him if he was in the music industry and Tony of course said yes that he had managed huge names. Susan was dressed lavishly and gave Tony the impression that she was wealthy but Susan thought he was wealthy. <laughs> so they both thought that they were going to con a rich person out of some money and Neither one of them, Chris said, had the money to pay for the pitchers of beers that they'd ordered. (laughs) That's so crazy. So, yeah. And I don't know if, like, that realization when they both figured out that they're both full of shit, they were like, hey, we've really got something here. Yeah. Because, like, you'd think they're like, oh, well, this was a dud. Like, whatever. But they talked. They laughed. They flirted. Chris was just there. It's going to be super awkward. I don't know how old she was, but super awkward. And before leaving, Chris said her mother leaned over to Tony and said, did you know that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth again? And Tony didn't really know the Bible. He was raised in a Jewish family and didn't know much about Christianity. And he had honestly never seemed interested in women really before meeting Susan. And he actually despised women. So that's a problem that we're going to see. Yeah. But according to him, Susan was a completely different person. She and Tony were two of the same person, and they both saw that. She began to teach him about the Bible and about being a prophet and how they should be saving people. In 1966, the couple married, and Susan took Tony's last name, and the two began their journey together. Happily ever after. (laughs) Where did he get the name Tony Alamo, though? I have no idea. And I wonder if he... I feel like he wanted it pronounced Alamo just to, like, be like... It's Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's Alamo. Because I think that's why the one guy in the thing we watched... I think he just called him Alamo probably just to Mm -hmm. piss him off. Like, Yeah. But, yeah, because it's like we were watching Wreck-It Ralph the other night. And they were, like, in a little focus group, counseling group or whatever. And... Satan was trying to make Ralph feel better or whatever. And um, Ralph is like, hey, thanks, Satan. And he goes, it's actually Satan, but, um, (laughs) you know, I won't like. It's it's Alamo, 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 what was it? Alamo, Alamo. God, whatever. (laughs) Forget it. Right. (laughs) Oh, goodness gracious. So after their marriage, the Alamos took to the streets of Hollywood Boulevard looking to help people. And I use that loosely. Mm Mm-hmm. Tony said that the Lord told him and Susie to go out into the streets, get these people, and preach the gospel. By these people, they were referring to young hippies. Many of the hippies had migrated to California looking for a better life or a different experience. Susan saw them in the streets singing songs about God being dead and burning down churches. The couple made it their mission to preach the gospel to these individuals. Surprisingly, Tony and Susan were able to attract a lot of these young people. So many of them were so lost, vulnerable, and looking for a path in life The Alamo Christian Foundation gave them that. They had two leaders who gave them guidance, the guidance they craved, and they were finally a part of something. They began saving people and taking them to the beach to baptize them. The couple had created a community. Their followers believed that they had found happiness in God. Tony was the business of the foundation and Susan was the gospel. They began to generate money and soon Tony saw the potential for the foundation to become even more profitable for him. By 1970, they had over 200 followers living in a three bedroom house (sighs) in Crescent Heights or in the Crescent Heights neighborhood in LA. Wow. Can you imagine the stink in that house? Oh my gosh, I know. It's like those circus cars with like the 50 clowns in them. Oh, yeah, right. Wow. How do you fit that many people? I don't know. And like, like, they'd all have to be standing up single file, you'd think. (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, how did they all sleep? Yeah. Like in a pile like puppies? Like I don't get it. You'd have to. Yeah. Stack them up. The LAPD would often come to the home as there were significant concerns about the unsanitary condition of the home and the violation of many city codes. Susan and Tony quickly grew fed up with authorities and felt they needed to move their church. They found a property in Saugus Canyon Mm -hmm. about 45 minutes from Hollywood. They purchased it and moved up there bringing their converts with them. They wanted to remove the converts from where they were in an attempt to make them even more reliant on the church. It was reported that the foundation's main source of income was from their converts selling all their earthly belongings and turning in the money. Susan denied this to interviewers. She said that most people who came to them had nothing. Despite this denial of a source of income for the Alamos, the foundation was still making money. They told the followers that they needed money to get the gospel out. The followers worked in fields doing labor around town. They found that they needed to create a nonprofit organization to keep the money for themselves. So I was telling my husband about this um, a little bit because I've been looking into it and stuff, getting prepared. And it always like blows his mind. He's like, who would follow them though? And like, when we get into some of the stuff that they were doing to their followers and the children and stuff, he's like, But who would just let that happen? And it's like, they prey on vulnerable people. It's just, it's Mm -hmm. always just like, you look at something and you're just like, there is no way. Like, how? But everything that they did was completely calculated to get full compliance. Well, it's grooming. And yeah, I mean, we've seen it because we've talked about Heaven's Gate. Mm -hmm. We've talked about Jonestown. Mm -hmm. They all do it. Yeah. And- one of the biggest and scariest times I feel like in the church is when they move them and isolate them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But it's like, it's like in the cult handbook. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, there's a formula for it. Yeah. First, you got to make sure that they have nothing left, give away all their stuff, or you take all their money or whatever and mm-hmm. tell them it's for the good of the world and blah, 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 blah. And then you got to get them away from everybody. And that, like, it's just, yeah, it's like a total handbook. Mm hmm. 17-year-old Carrie Miller first heard the Alamo name in 1970. His older brother, Bob, told him that he was going to serve the Lord at their church in Saugus. The boys hadn't grown up with religion in their homes, so this was a new experience for Bob. Carrie went with him to the Saugus Canyon location just to check everything out. He noticed that the church had people of all ages, races, and backgrounds. They were all so entranced by the Alamos, particularly Susan. She told the followers that she was a prophet of God and that he spoke to her. Carrie watched as the crowd of people sang gospel and knew every word. They were raising their hands in the air. They were rolling their eyes. He was watching his brother do the same thing. And he's just like, okay, like this is, you know, this is not, we didn't grow up with this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Susan spoke about how important it is to lay down your life for the Lord. Carrie sat down beside Susan and told her that he was going to try the church out for a semester and see if it was real. And he said that she just, like, smirked and was like, huh, well, that'll be the longest semester of your life. Mm, she went wrong. I know. Sue Balsley had graduated from high school in 1969 in Minnesota. She was working full-time to pay her bills, and on the weekend, she partied with friends, occasionally indulging in the use of LSD. Looking for new adventure and answer, she and a friend decided to hitchhike to California. Just so much hitchhiking these days. I know. They made it to Hollywood Boulevard and ran into followers from the foundation. They were handing out flyers saying that people needed to repent or perish. And Sue was like, that's cool. I'm like, that seems like a not ideal piece of paper to get. Right. I don't know. Like, that sounds cool. I want to... I want to find out if I'm going to hell or not. I don't know. It's just like, but she thought it was cool. And she's like, go, cool. let's, let's go. So in 1973, the foundation began producing their own television show called the Tony and Susan Alamo Christian Foundation. They began broadcasting their television ministry from Hollywood. There would be a sermon by Susan, of course, gospel, testimony, songs, and a message on each show. It was clear that the church was gaining more notoriety and the Alamos wanted to recruit as many new followers as they could. Back in Saugus, the followers were working 10 plus hours a day. They got paid weekly and every Friday, one of the foundation workers instructed by Tony would go around to everyone and give them a pen to sign their paycheck and hand it into the foundation. Everybody's paychecks ranging from $200 to $500 weekly were going to the Alamos. They were told that they were paying to help spread the gospel and take care of the property. As the population of the church grew, so did the power of the Alamos. They berated their followers using verbal and physical abuse, all in the name of God. Sue had given birth to a son, but wasn't allowed to rest. The mothers were told that they were never good enough, couldn't work hard enough. Sue remembered being so exhausted that she couldn't hold her baby in her arms. Susan would scream at them about how lazy and awful they were. The mothers were given cloth diapers, but oftentimes they didn't have water to clean them maggots would get in the dirty diapers and they couldn't keep their babies clean. No matter what the reason was, Susan would never miss a chance to tell them how they couldn't raise children, couldn't even keep their diapers clean. That's just so... Like, as a mother, and this is the conditions you're living in, and this is what your child is going through, There's maggots in your child's diaper. Mm-hmm. And I understand there's so many things that go into this mentally, emotionally, there's a lot of vulnerability and all those things, but it's like, you know, if you lived somewhere else, you'd have water, like mm-hmm. you'd be able to, and I know there's a lot that goes into that too, leaving, cause you'd have to start over and like all these things. It's just, I don't know. It's just like, it's one thing to yourself suffer through conditions like that. It's another thing for a baby to have to be put in a situation like that because they cannot get themselves out of it. Right. And it's that's not sanitary at all. It's not healthy. Well, no. And Susan and Tony are the ones who are creating these conditions for yeah. th- these people. Yeah. And then they're blaming them for not being able to create a better life for their children. Mm-hmm. It's just so messed up. Yeah. Nicole Andy Cordan because it's messed up. I know. And that's like, again, that's part of the like playbook, you know, like for abusive relationships and everything, I've got to break them down so much that they feel like all of this is their fault, that our life would be so much better if not for them. They're the ones that is, you know, I've had opportunities and they've ruined them, not the other way around, you know, like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They feel beholden to me because of this. So sad. So this did not dissuade Sue or the other women. They truly believed that Susan and Tony were prophets and heard God's voice. As the church grew, so did the sermons that Susan gave. Her stories became more outlandish, but no one would dare question the Alamos. Chris said that she faked cancer for years. She would say that she had terminal cancer for six years, but that God was a healer. He'd chosen her to heal and send his word through. The followers were told that they must pray for Susan, who was suffering for their sins. She said that their sins were what, were what was making her have cancer. <laughs> it's just so sad because cross-reference any of that in the Bible, and that tells you this is not true. So, like, it's just so sad mm-hmm. to use something that people build a foundation on and build it on lies. Right, absolutely. And then use those lies against people who... Mm -hmm. are literally giving up their entire lives for you. Yeah. Mm -mm -mm. As the followers reflected on their faults and prayed every day and every night for Susan, she would go into the city with her daughter and buy herself extravagant things. Chris said that her followers were crying for her while she took their money and used it on a shopping spree. Families of, of followers were growing increasingly concerned. If the family was okay with the church, they were supposedly allowed to visit the church and their loved ones. If they didn't agree with the church, they were exiled from their family. They tried to go to the media to get the word out about what they believed was happening to their family members, but it didn't work and the Alamos following just continued to grow. Their television show continued as they brought people from the church to testify about being saved on air. The followers would never not do what they were told. Followers' children were also brought on and were so frightened that all they could do was just say yes when Susan asked them if they were happy living at the foundation. The Alamos were great actors when it came to presenting themselves and their cause to the public. Carrie and his brother Bob were living in Saugus when Tony and Susan began splitting up families. He separated Carrie and Bob. Shortly after Carrie fell in love with another follower. Once he met her, he said that he truly became a part of the foundation and stopped thinking for himself. Also, though, so like there's one, there's one part where, because what they were trying to do is, you know, get people on the air to be like, this is how great it is to live here. Like, you know, Jim Jones did the same thing and You know, look at how much fun we're having and look at how happy we are and all these things. So she's conducting interviews with people that, you know, it's supposed to be in question if these people are actually happy or not, but they're the ones conducting the interviews. So why anybody thinks that that's credible? I have no idea because if if it's just me standing over somebody who's deathly afraid of me being like, do you like living here? Like, you know what the fuck is going to happen to you if you say no. So, of course, you're going to say yes. Like, I don't understand that. But, you know, they're doing the things. And there was a little girl on there. And Mm -hmm. it's so heartbreaking to see her. You can tell she's petrified. She does not look— She doesn't look like, oh, I'm shy. She looks petrified. Right. And Susan's like, do you like living here? And she's like— She stuttered at first, and then she says yes. And that's all she says. And she's just kind of looking down. And, you know, she's not making eye contact or whatever. And Susan being, you know, they were incredible actors because I don't know the exact relationship Susan had with these people, but it wasn't a kind relationship, that's for sure. I don't know how well she knew each person there, but in the interview, you know, on TV, she's like, well, this is the first time I've ever caught that one without something to say. And like, they're just like, oh, Yeah. yeah. And it's like acting like, well, every time I see you, you know, you come up and talk to me and we're, such good friends and you know we're so comfortable with each other and whatever and like that is absolutely not the case like but she can just throw something like that out there and it would make sense if she had been like her grandmother or something like oh Mm -hmm. are you just being shy today or something like that but she threw it in there and it just makes it i mean she's a good actor Mm -hmm. gotta give her that i guess yeah There were rumors outside of the foundation about what went on inside their walls, but none were aware of the child abuse that had become rampant inside. Susan told parents that when their children became became too big to spank, then they needed to start slapping them across the face. (laughs) Perfect. Well, well, but here's the thing it's not appropriate to slap them on the bottoms anymore, you know? Yeah. And they get older, like you don't want to be touching their bottoms. So slapping their face is probably. The most appropriate way to do it. Right. And to encourage other parents on how to discipline their children? Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. Yeah, if they're too big to spank, slap them across the face. <laughs> wow. At the Sagas property, there was a small room off to the side be- behind the church. Parents were chosen by Susan and Tony and instructed to bring their children there. They were then told that their child was possessed by the devil and that parents needed to beat the devil out of them. The parents followed their directions without question. They truly believed that their children were possessed. Why? I mean, now we're like back in the Salem witch yeah. days, right? <sighs> yeah. Why? What are they doing to make them believe that they're possessed by the devil? Are they crying because they're hungry or dirty or whatever? Right. You know, are they are they speaking out because they're unhappy? Like, right. Yeah, exactly. But it can't be normal any of those childhood things. function, right? Yeah, no, possessed. It was when Chris found out about the parents being told to beat their children that she knew she had to get out of there. She was twenty years old and had two daughters. She finally told her mother that she needed to leave, and Susan told her daughter that she knew way too much about what went on in the church and was not going anywhere. She said that she'd kill her before she'd let her go, and Chris said she just freaked out. And she just like started running and she ran to her room and she started trying to pack stuff for them to leave. And then somebody's banging on the door. And it was several guys from the ministry and Susan was standing behind them. And the boys directed by Susan proceeded to beat Chris and Susan would reach out like between hits and grab Chris's hair or like scratch her. Like she's like in on the beating part too. You know, mm-hmm. trying to get in on the action. She said she finally lost consciousness. When she came to, her children were gone. Chris called the police who went, to, who went with her to Susan's house and got her oldest daughter. But her youngest daughter was with the father who was still in the foundation. Chris went to the police station to have her in- injuries photographed and begin the process of pressing charges. While there, she got a phone call. It was a lawyer who told her that if she didn't sign anything and didn't press any charges she could come and get her youngest daughter. And Chris was like, I mean. I had to have my children. Yeah, what was I going to do? Yeah, of course I'm going to do that. So she drove there and Susan said to her while she was there, I warned you, you really blew it. And Chris was like, I left with my girls and I did not look back. That was it. Mm -mm. The foundation had gotten so large that Tony and Susan felt they needed a bigger place. More importantly, the police and Saugus were becoming more suspicious of them. Authorities had noticed the ministry's growing income and suspected that workers were not being paid. The Alamos, who routinely spoke about how law enforcement wanted to present, prevent them from spreading the gospel, told followers that they needed to relocate to where the gospel had started, the, to the Bible Belt. In 1975, the ministry moved from California to Arkansas, where Susan had grown up. She told them that Arkansas was the promised land, <laughs> that she was there when she was nine years old and had been touched by God. She said that he saved her while she was dying from tuberculosis. Liar, liar, pants <laughs> on fire. Yeah. Chris said that throughout the years, there had been so many variations of that story that's from Susan that she couldn't keep them straight. Chris believed that Susan wanted to return to Arkansas to the place that had treated her so badly so she could throw them off from what she had done. Susan and Tony chose the city of Alma, Arkansas. The city was close to a major interstate and not far from Texas and Oklahoma. Police believe they chose the city for reasons. If they needed to move again because of law enforcement, they could quickly move to either Texas or Oklahoma. The ministry built business in the area, and they were staffing them with volunteers. Kerry was tasked with establishing accounting for the ministry. Tony basically told him that he wanted the IRS to have a big mess that they investigated. There were so many different holdings and offshore accounts that it would have been difficult to make much sense of it. Since their church was listed as a nonprofit, they were not subjected to taxes. In 1970, the foundation's revenue was approximately 46,000, and by 1975, it was over a million dollars. That's quite a jump. Very much so, yes. Despite these numbers, Tony told interviewers that they showed a loss each year. He said that the foundation was not intended to make profit. It was intended to meet the needs of the volunteers. The volunteers that Tony said didn't believe they needed to be paid to serve the Lord. Yeah. They're serving the Lord. They don't need a paycheck. They're doing doing the Lord's work. They're doing the Lord's work. Yeah. And I think they also said they want you to have all the food that you need, all the water that you need, and to have a comfortable home to live in. But they don't want that either. Right. They're like, they're the prophets. We look up to them so much. We want them to want for nothing and we will suffer. It's really nice people. I mean, well, and I know plenty of people who are like that all over the world. So if you have like hundreds and hundreds of volunteers, it makes sense, right? For all of them to be that selfless. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, what's really sad. We said this about Jim Jones too is if they had actually put half as much energy into actually doing what they purported to be doing and, you know, spreading the word and helping other people and all this kind of stuff, if they were actually doing that, they could have done some good things in the world. But instead what they did was try to con people out of money Mm -hmm. any way that they knew how, con them into religion. Right. And then steal all their money. Yeah, and give them these ridiculously poor conditions to live in and worked them to the bone. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. I hate them. I know. The Alamos had their followers construct a new facility nearby in Dyer, Arkansas called Georgia Ridge. It was a 243-acre compound far from prying eyes. There were two entrances and the entire compound was gated. Both entrances had vehicles and watchmen at them 24-7 everything was monitored and no one had any time to themselves. If they found themselves without something to do, they were to read the Bible or listen to tapes of Susan preaching. And again, this is so reminiscent of Jim Jones. Like, yes, because the thing is, if, I mean, I'm sure they were like, well, you know, idle, idle hands or the devil's workshop, you know, like you've got to be doing something all the time. Uh But what it really meant was if you had any time to yourself to actually think, and you weren't so overcome with exhaustion, You might put two and two together and be like, this is not fair. Yeah, this isn't right, what's happening here? Yeah. The compound had a nursery and followers were not permitted to use birth control. By forcing their followers to reproduce, it ensured that members couldn't leave, you know, because you're you're not gonna leave your kids there.
1: You're gonna wanna
0: if you're gonna leave, you're gonna wanna take your kids. So you'll be stuck since you have kids, basically. And all they wanted, the the entire purpose of Their ministry, quote-unquote ministry, was control, complete and absolute control. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and money. Well, yeah. But And those were cane in hand, like the power, the money, the Mm -hmm. control, all of it together. Yeah. There were many children at the compound, all of whom referred to Tony as Papa Tony. Rebecca, who was born into the foundation, said that there were 24 children in her group. They were all born within like days and weeks and months of each other. To the children, Tony and Susan were the people that provided for them, and they were their gods. The Alamos lived in a house in the Georgia Ridge compound that was referred to as the Speck House. This is also where the reports happened. Reports were when a follower saw someone doing something wrong and reported it to Susan. She would often end in punishment, sometimes physical, sometimes being separated from their family, and occasionally in exile from the church. These reports were were super, super frequent. Children reported their parents. Parents reported their children. Some even reported themselves because they were petrified that they were going to go to hell. The children believed that the other children deserved to be beaten because God was trying to save them. Mm. And you got to think too, I mean, they were born into this. This is all that they know. Right. They do not have any outside interaction with anyone, so they have no idea what life is like on the outside and how things are actually supposed to be. Exactly. Exactly. Just so sad. People were attracted to the foundation by Susan. She was truly the brains behind the ministry and the mind control. Ironically enough, as often as Susan claimed that God had helped her heal from the terminal cancer that never existed, she found out that she actually did, in fact, have cancer. Oopsie. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the name of this uh, little section. It's called Karma Sucks, which is exactly what happened. Yep. She stopped attending church and grew very sick very quickly. When they took her in for surgery, they immediately saw that her body was consumed by the disease. There was nothing that the doctors could do for her. Her, The followers were instructed to pray for their sick leader while Tony stood by. His concern being that people might not follow him after Susan was gone. Yeah, I wonder why. (laughs) I know, right? I don't think he's going to get by alone looking like friggin a mix between like a cheap Elvis and Roy Orbison. <laughs> yeah, he really did. <laughs> yeah. On April 8th, 1982, at 56 years old, Susan Alamo passed away. Now, this is not a, a shot at, well, who cares? I'm going to shoot at Susan, fine. I was shocked when they said that she was 56 years old. Yeah. Shocked because she looked, A, completely different than you'd ever seen her before. Yeah. Like not even the same person almost. But before that, I was like, she's she's probably in her 60s, right? Before this happened, I was like, before she'd even, you know, gotten cancer, I was like, she's in her 60s. And then they said she was 56 when she passed away. And I was like, what? I know, I know. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like she is one of those like road hard put up wet kind of people. I don't know what Mm -hmm. why, but I'm kind of thinking of that. Everybody's free to wear sunscreen or it's like, don't mess with your hair too much. Or by the time you're 40, it'll look 85. Like that's, (laughs) she bleached the ever loving shit out of that hair. And it was very harshly pulled back with like some little curls on the sides and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Like, geez. Anyway. (laughs) Sue remembered the sickening guilt that she'd felt after Susan's death. Sue said that she fell asleep the night before and couldn't stay up throughout the night and continued to pray for Susan. She felt like it was her fault. Tony was heartbroken. Susan was the only woman he'd ever truly loved and he was unsure of how to continue the foundation without her. He decided not to bury his wife. He put her in an open casket in the spec house and told followers that the Bible said that she was gonna rise from the dead. The house turned into a prayer chapel with a prayer chain. Followers took two-hour shifts to pray that Susan would wake up. Mm. A year passed and Susan's body remained in the open casket in the spec house. Tony blamed the followers for her not coming back from the dead. He said that they hadn't prayed hard enough and hadn't fasted long enough. Someone finally came to Tony and told him that he needed to bury her, that the body was starting to rot. He had a mausoleum built on the property and finally buried his wife. Rebecca's father was one of the followers who had been in the room with Susan and Tony as she was dying. He said that Susan grabbed Tony, pulled him close and said, you're going to destroy this place. Let these people go. Don't continue this. It's wrong. Dun, dun, dun. I know. That's part one. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> We're pulling a fast one on you. Yeah. So to sum up, they said Susan was dying for their sins, but she couldn't really die. because She's a prophet. Now she's dead. Yes. From cancer. And allegedly said, you need to stop this. You can't continue this. This is wrong. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure it's one of those like things that happen. I've heard of people, you know, on their deathbed, they're like, Oh, I've gotta I've gotta make this right because I know I'm not getting out of this. I can't continue this way. Yeah. I'm sure she maybe had some revelation or something, but yeah. Anyway, that's part one. It's part one. We will pick up. Last last week. We'll pick up next week. What? You next episode. back in time. <laughs> yeah. I thought that would be fun. Do the whole thing backwards. Yeah. There <laughs> I don't know that word. <laughs> but yeah, we will catch you guys next week. Let us know what you think about this case. If you've heard about it, if you have thoughts on it, definitely let us know. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Hey okay, you guys, before we go. For the day, we want to say a hey girl thanks to some some new patrons before we go. Okay, all right. Tori has been really just on my ass, riding that ass all day. I'm over it. I'm over it. (laughs) So now I want to talk about people I like. Oh, okay. Well, fine. (laughs) So hey girl, thanks to McKaylee Trussell, Amy Barnett, Georgette Morgan, Courtney King, Alessandra Reed. Julia Escamilla, Megan, Pax Payden, Anita Kanapka, Sandy Kemish, Sarah Springer, Melinda Garrett, Abby, Brandon Spearman, Laura King, Marissa Freeman, Hannah Bentley, Noah Castle, Hannah Rigby, Jamie Palmgren, Shannon Eshelman, Zayda Barwick, Alex McGeever, Ricky Wetzenkamp, Kylie Jackson, Hannah Nelson, Mandy Duggan, Elizabeth McCoffin, Casey Hutchison, Mindy Ray, Molly, Tiffany Fair, Sierra McCarthy, Tiffany Yant, Lynette McIrvin, Tommy Lee, Tommy Lee, that's badass. (laughs) Nicole String, Alexandria Bell, Shreya Bari, Janelle, Tracy McCulloch, Marissa Barnes, Rachel Onby, Elena Monreal, Rowan Tree, Haley Marshall, Melissa Hahn, Sabrina Farrell, Allison, Tracy, Sarah Jane, Brandy Archer, Rhonda Lake, Kendra Streeter, Mason Welch, and Ricky. Yay! Thank you guys so much. We love you. And if you want your very own shout out, just join us over at Patreon, $10 and above. It's Yay. one of these little suckers. I know. And I got to say, as someone who Torella does not like, it's mm-hmm. got to feel nice to be liked. So, Yeah, it should. I, I wouldn't know, but it should feel nice. Yes. And create a very stark disparity between how I feel about you. <laughs> All right. I'm done with this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love you guys. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye! The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show.